everybody. Welcome to episode 24 of the Book Cougars, Two Middle-Aged Women on the Hunt for a Good Read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And we are here today recording back in our favorite craft room at the library. I have a bit of a full house in my dorm room right now, so <laughs> I thought I would give my guests a break and we could, uh, Chris and I could take our recording elsewhere. Um, we have a big episode today, I think. We both have a lot to talk about, including our joint read of The Grapes of Wrath. But I read a little editorial in the July 29th um, section of the New York Times review that I just wanted to talk really briefly about. The, the heading of, or title of the piece was, Give Teenage Boys Books About Sex. So how could I not read it? <laughs> it drew my attention. It was written by Daniel Handler, a.k.a. Lemony Snicket. Oh, great. He's the, the gentleman who wrote um, the Lemony Snicket novels. And essentially what he's talking about is how important literature was to him as a young boy and how what he did want to read about was filthy things. He had filthy things on the brain and he wanted to read about them and how important it is to really let boys have books that they can read and that as an author of young adult novels, there's a lot of conversation in the industry about the fact that there are more young women reading than there are young men and how do we get more young men reading and he said the way to get them reading is to give them what they want to read mm -hmm. and he has a new novel coming out and it, he said it portrays a young boy's emotional heteroflexible sex life and he'd like it to be read by young people but the publishers are publishing it for adults oh. and he feels like that's slightly problematic on many levels and one of the things he said is um, I want to see if I can find it he says Young people's literature gets so easily riled up about sex, preferring to recommend, say, books about teenagers slaughtering one another in a post-apocalyptic landscape, rather than books about kids masturbating at home. To which many would say, what? Don't we have more important things to worry about than giving sexually explicit lit literature to young people? Shouldn't we be more concerned about, say, the rampant misogyny of everyday life in a nation led by a self-admitted sexual predator? Which to me is, is, is precisely the point. I believe in the power of literature to connect, to transform, particularly for young minds beginning to explore the world. I want books to be an unlimited resource for young people and their curiosity, not a sphere restricted by how uncomfortable some curiosities make adults feel. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really well said. And the whole piece is really well written. So in the show notes, I will link to that editorial. Um, and I think it's something for us to think about. Absolutely, you know? yeah. People need to read what they're interested in, and a lot of people talk about how books can help people navigate the world. Right. So why not write books and publish books for young guys who are navigating their sexual awakening? Right. And do it in a responsible way. Right. You know, obviously, I think one of the big things you don't read about in literature is the consequences of young boys having sex at a young age when they don't have knowledge right. of the consequences, mm -hmm. whether it's from STDs or getting somebody pregnant and the lifelong consequences of that, right. which are very different now than they were even in our generation growing up now with paternity tests. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You can't, you can't just escape anymore. No. <laughs> from that. <laughs> you can't. You can run, but you can't yeah. hide. Well, you know, because yeah. I mean, so much yeah. of literature it is. If it's about young people having sex, it's the consequence of the girl getting pregnant. Right. And her being saddled with this, sometimes not having a choice right. on what to do, and the guys can traditionally disappear. Right. As we 
selling the grapes of wrath. Right, exactly. You know? <laughs> More to come on that. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's a great piece. Yeah, I, I yeah. look forward to reading that. Yeah, actually. it was really. Of course, he's a writer, so it was very well written. But I think it was very thoughtful, and I also think it was thoughtful because it was written by a man. Mm-hmm. I mean, lots of times we hear these things, you know, from the female perspective about the male desire and things like that. But I think his. You know, it, it more. I just read you a little tiny piece of it, and in other parts of it, he talks about the books that were really meaningful to him mm-hmm. as a child growing up. So, um, I encourage you to read it. It's very thought provoking, especially if you're, if you have teenage boys at home and you're trying to find literature for them. Mm-hmm. You know, thanks for sharing that. Sure. All right. So just read. Yes, so I've only read The Grapes of Wrath. You have another one, so why don't I you did. start with Well, yours? I did. I finished uh, The Talented Ribkins uh, by Laddie Hubbard, which I talked about last time as currently reading, um, and that's from Melville House. It, it was a really great read. It deals with race from an African-American man's perspective. He's, it's contemporary times, and he's in his early 70s, and he was part of the civil rights movement back in the day. So, and then with his family history, there's even further back racial tensions and racial realities that African-American people had to deal with. But they're very subtly woven through in some ways, Mm. sometimes not so subtly because of his involvement in the civil rights movement. But it's about this older gentleman who's traveling around Florida digging up stashes that he had buried in the past to come up with the funds to pay off his gangster boss who he is indebted to. And along the way, his uh, niece that he didn't know he had is driving along with him, and that comes about in a way. So it's this great intergenerational relationship, and she's learning about her family along the way, and he's exploring his past along the way. So it's a beautiful story about their relationship and family in general and race in America. Wow, it sounds like it's from a very interesting perspective. It really is. And there's a little bit of magical realism in it, Mm. uh, which I'm not a fan of. And I don't think it was really fully developed because the Ribkins family traditionally have special powers. And they're there, but I don't... With one character, I can see how it influenced his life. And in some ways, it's a good thing. and other things, it's... It's not a good thing in life to have a special power. Yes. But there, it's not very developed, I don't think. It's not um, a very strong element within the plots in some ways. And are you saying that as it bothered you, or it was because of that that it didn't, because you don't love magical realism, it wasn't overly done, so it didn't, it didn't trouble you as you were reading yeah, it? Yeah, no, it didn't trouble me. Yeah. It was more of a curiosity, I like, see. oh, well, yeah. what does that mean, and what's going to happen with that I see. kind of thing? It's the yeah. woman's first novel, okay. um, Hubbard's first novel, and it's kind of a crime novel, but it's listed as you know, literary fiction. So, Ooh, it's a book. Good. And it's a quick read. Okay. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I still think about the characters every mm. now and then. I love And I like finished that. it, you know, what, at least two weeks ago. Yeah. Just yeah. after we recorded the last episode. Yes, Chris and I haven't seen each other since we recorded last, so we're kind of looking at each other like, busy. who are you? Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> so, and I know I've been, I have been so busy too, and the only book I read was Grapes of Wrath, which that, yeah. is, you know our joint read-along that we've been talking about that we're going to talk about today. And um, 
It is a big boy. It was. It was 450 pages. At least my copy oh, of it was. Mine is 619 pages. Oh, my. Let me, let's compare See, I would fonts. have loved your oh, font. Oh, see, my font yeah. is much bigger. My font was, it was a challenge. And um, this was a this was a heavy book, I have to say. I'm very glad I read it. I have never read it. Have you read it before, Chris? I never read it. Okay. I, I started it in the past, and I really had a hard time just getting past the first chapter yeah. and thinking, like, oh, I don't really want to read this right now. So yeah. I never did, but I'm, I'm very happy I finally did because it was a book on my list to get to. So yeah. now when I'm on my deathbed, I won't regret not reading <laughs> The Grapes of Wrath. I could say I've been there, done that. I had a good life. I never read The Grapes of Wrath. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, I, I'm really happy to have read it, and we're just going to jump in. Well, I wonder if we should just give a brief – Little, I don't know if I know you have some things to read. Mm-hmm. Just a little brief synopsis of what it was about. Okay. Do you want to do yeah, that? Yeah, sure. The Grapes of Wrath. It was published in 1939 by John Steinbeck, and it was about the struggles facing people in farming communities who were being forced off their land due to a combination of the the Great Depression, the Dust Bowl, changing our agricultural practices. And these people, millions of people, well, I'm not sure about the number, but close to a million people, Mm -hmm. I think, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or hundreds of thousands were displaced and had nowhere to go. And they headed towards California because there was handbills flowing around saying, come to California, we need 800 people to pick the fruit and, and other produce. So all these people headed to California, the land of milk and honey, so the Grapes of Wrath chronicles one family's experience of losing their land and their trip to California. I think about half of the book is the trip to California, maybe, and then the other half is their experience in California. Yeah, was, in my book, it was literally at the halfway mark was it? Okay. that they arrive in California. Yeah. yeah, and I didn't realize that. I thought the whole book was going to be about the trip, because mm-hmm. that's the iconic images you see, is their... Like car packed full of everything. Yeah. Yeah. So they get to California and it's not a pleasant experience there. So the book chronicles what life was like for people coming to try and find work there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's. And they meet people along the way mm -hmm. that are also on the same path and the same route, you know, to find work. Yeah. And it's very. So so the book is about that. Steinbeck was writing about these people and their experience and how they were trying to cope with it. And the forces working against them, I say working against them in air quotes, because that is a complex thing we can talk about yes. further in our conversation <laughs> yes. about that. So, But it is about the Jode family. It was a, a bestseller when it came out. It really swept the land. It is a classic that people read. A lot of people read it in high school. I don't recall it being assigned in high school, and if it was assigned in high school, I blew off that assignment. (laughs) I did not have it assigned in high school. (laughs) But a lot of people did read Mm -hmm. it in high school. And we had a lot of people comment on our Facebook page when we announced the read-along how much they love The Grapes of Wrath, that they read it in high school or college, and they've read it several times since then. Right. most The most common reaction when I've told people I'm reading The Grapes of Wrath is either, oh, you haven't read that yet, or, oh... Okay, well, good for you. You know, <laughs> right. because it is for a lot of for most people, it's a very exhausting experience mm-hmm. to read the Grapes of Wrath because it is not, it's not a pleasant story. No, it's not. It's very depressing. 
it's also it's depressing because of what it's about it's also depressing to be reading it in 2017 and feel like it's very topical exactly yeah <laughs> i think i struggled more with that than with the poor joad family themselves mm -hmm. you know just feeling like this could be a family these there probably are families doing this exact thing right now mm -hmm. you know yeah so um yeah i worked in a community in wheaton illinois which is in DuPage County, which is a very wealthy county. And there were families who were homeless, who lived in their cars, so their kids could go to the schools mm -hmm. in those neighborhoods because right. they were really good schools. Right. And, yeah. and people chose to be homeless and, and live in vehicles to have that opportunity for their children. Right. I think what I struggle with, you know, as someone who works in philanthropy, so I work with a lot of wealthy people, and I've now moved to the state of Connecticut, which is... The, I think it's like the 11th wealthiest state in the country, but it also is a very unusual state in that the economic disparity here is vast. I mean, it is so huge because you've got such extraordinary wealth and such extraordinary poverty. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting to work with wealthy people to try to explain the plight of the fact that we actually, we do have people who are starving in this country. Yeah. They are simply hungry, yes. you know. And so I feel like I have, you know, I have some understanding of that, but not to the level, obviously, of, you know, I'm, a, I'm, you know, I'm not living in abject poverty either. So, you know, I'm not an extraordinarily wealthy person either. But so I think it's really hard to understand abject poverty. Yes. You know, where you literally are starving and you don't know where you're going to get food next. Mm -hmm. And you're, I mean, the thing about the Joads that really touched me is they wanted to work. Yes. That's what they wanted to do. And so when you go back and look at, um, what's the book we've been talking about? Hillbilly Elegy, where there was this, you know, commentary throughout the book that rural Appalachia, you know, they people really didn't want to, don't want to work. Exactly. You know, yeah. that is not the case in The Grapes of Wrath and with the Joad family. I mean, they're desperately seeking work and they're so desperate that the people who could be helping them and employing them can take advantage of them. Yes. You know? Because there's so many people. Right. And the thing is, too, those... And that's the complex thing about the book and, and this, the time period and our time period and, and economic reality in America is that the people who are employing these people are also beholden to banks. Right. And... Mm -hmm. Nowadays, it would be shareholders, mm -hmm. right? Right. Um, so there is this faceless entity that's causing the problem. Mm -hmm. That, you know, who do I shoot? Is, right. is what they're saying at the beginning right. of the book, where it's like, who, who can we shoot? Right. The landowner's beholden to the banks, and who runs the bank? A manager, but the manager's not doing anything but the bidding of these mythical people back east. Right. The business back east, I should say, not even people. So yeah. there's no one you can hold accountable for what's going on to you. So talk about helpless. You're starving. You're watching your children starve. And there's no one to go to to say, I want to work. I want to make this better. You know, right. help us. Right. Yeah. And there were so many people. Yeah. I mean, that was the other thing that I felt. You know, as they arrive in California, they go to these camps, you know, where there are other people experiencing the same situation or they've been there a little bit longer you know we, the book is I mean I was I was having trouble breathing at certain points because it's like the Jodes are constantly moving yeah. and you want them to like settle in even though it's a community that's still a camp you know it's like 
settle in, unpack, you right. know, yeah. like cook some food, you know, and as soon as they do, then they, you know, someone who's been there longer says to them, there's no work here either. Mm-hmm. So they pack up and move on. Or there were some, you know, altercations that occurred where they felt like they had to get out of Dodge quickly. Exactly. And so then they would yeah. move on. And mm-hmm. it was just like the pace, even though I struggled, the struggle I had with the book is that the chapters kind of um, go back and forth. Steinbeck has some chapters that are just kind of, I called them, call them place chapters where he kind of talks about, you know, an overarching theme of migrant workers or the land itself or something like that. And then the other chapters, the body of the book, really, because those chapters are very short, is a lot of dialogue and there's, it's a dialect Mm -hmm. and my font was so small in my book and the dialect, I kept saying like, this is going to get easier for you. And Simon Savage of The Readers talks about books and dialect and that what works for him is reading it aloud for a little bit mm-hmm. and that that kind of helps you get the voice and then you can, and that didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. I found it kind of difficult the whole time. Yeah. But um, I think there was a point to my saying that, which I've now lost. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, I just felt like, it, oh no, I know. This, so the dialect made it feel a little bit more plodding to me too. Like it just, it was hard for me to get through the book, but I felt like that was also like, their journey was really hard. Exactly, I was yeah. in it with them in that way, yeah. you know. Well, and in some ways, and this might not be a popular opinion, they this family has been farming that plot of land, that 40 acres, for generations now. In Oklahoma. In, in Oklahoma, yeah, because yeah. it was mm-hmm. great-grandpa who came mm-hmm. and, you know, right. quote, fought the Indians and yeah. broke the land and built a house. But that's all they've been doing for all those generations. Mm-hmm. So there is that plotting sense plotting yeah not plotting right right plotting plotting that they're kind of this is their life you know they they keep doing the same thing the same thing the same thing so they there is that plotting sense even in their language Mm -hmm. and that is one thing that drove me crazy i don't mind the dialect but everything was she her Mm -hmm. get her yeah and she a whatever and it was just like oh that drove me nuts yeah and i thought was steinbeck Making a point about that, mm. was that the lingo from this area? It, in the movie, it wasn't quite so... Oh, interesting. Relentless? Yeah. Well, it was before the, you know, I don't know, females were treated differently then, right? Well, so. and that's an interesting point, too, about the book, the gender relationships, which I didn't anticipate being, like, Ma... She's so, so strong. Ma is strong, yeah. and, like, and she... She's the one who holds the family together, right? In the movie as well. Mm-hmm. So she, in the in the beginning part of the book, she's kind of in the in the background doing things, but not exactly taking orders. But it's the men who are doing the planning mm-hmm. and, and the packing and everything. But slowly throughout the course of the book, she becomes the leader because Pa just he can't handle it right you know he just kind of blanks out really yeah and and all of the a lot of the characters disappear Mm -hmm. in that way spoiler alert grandma dies well grandpa dies first because he can't live away from the land then grandma dies on the road right one of the sons just stays right by the river they camp at a river one night and he just loves it there and he decides to stay the husband, Rosa Sharon, her husband just walks away, mm-hmm. leaves her pregnant because mm-hmm. he can't. It's not what he thought it was going to be, so he leaves. And Ma 
through all of this, just kind of steps up and starts running the show. And there's they, they talk about it like, oh, you know, you don't know your place. And there's one point Pa even says, you know, when we get back to normal, I'll smack you. Yeah. And she's like, well, good for you. Let's hope right. we get back to normal. Yeah, really. And it's just like, oh, Lord. But it's really, it's really telling that, and this is one of the problems I have with the book. It is a very powerful book, and you really feel it mm-hmm. in your gut and emotionally. But there are no solutions offered mm. in the book. And mm. everything is put on Ma's shoulders. Mm. And it's even more pronounced in the movie. Mm. That it's the women who all of this rests on her shoulders. And I think some people might think that's empowering. I think it's a bunch of bullshit. Because mm. I think it's a myth that keeps people down. Hmm. It keeps women down. It, it keeps people from looking for solutions. And that's one of the problems I had with the book. Do you mean a solution to the family paradigm itself or to the whole bigger to problem? To the whole bigger problem. Oh, I mean, I think the, the family microcosm can be part of the problem. But I think when you have all of these little families that are all operating in the same way and doing the same thing generation after generation, nothing changes. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there were some pronounced gender roles. Like, I mean, one of the things that I found fascinating was their car was constantly breaking down and the men were like, you know, like would go to some junkyard or the side of the road and find some piece of equipment and fix the car. And I know back in the day, cars were, you know, not computers and they were easier to fix with tools and duct tape and oil or whatever, you know. But, you know, the women were never a part of that. It was like, go make this thing work, mm-hmm. you know. And then Ma could, you know, me, I'm always looking for cupcakes in a book. You know, it's like, that lady could take some flour and some grease and mm-hmm. make shit happen for the exactly. family so they could eat, you know. Yeah. And I was fascinated by that part. But, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I see it the same way as you do. And maybe that's because I, I do think that, you know, mothers, there is a primal element of motherhood where you are going to rise above and you have carried these human beings in your body Mm -hmm. and you're going to do everything you can to not let something happen to them. Absolutely. And I totally agree with that. But I think the system takes advantage of that. Oh, yeah. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Is that, uh, yeah, I totally agree with you on that. But I think that is kind of like the plight of women Mm -hmm. is that. I agree. you, You can't walk away from your children in that yeah. way. I mean, I know some women do, and, and it happens, so I don't mean to sound... What I don't know what the word is. There's a word for that. Anyway, but I think the system takes advantage of that. Mm. Because yeah. even the these the smaller... The, well, the landowners in California, they know that these people will work for right. two and a half cents per box yeah. because they know that they're going to at least do something to try and get some kind of food in their children right. and even you know looking at the system uh there's a scene where a guy who's on his way back from california meets the jode family as they're on their way and he says i just come from there i lost my wife i lost my two kids because they starved to death right. but the coroner the the little kids who died the coroner listed the cause of death as heart failure right when it was starvation mm-hmm. and the thing is people don't want to admit that there's starvation mm-hmm. in america then or now like right. you're saying people are hungry they're chronically hungry mm-hmm. kids are dying from malnutrition and mm-hmm. it's listed as something else on their death certificate so people can kind of hide behind that again hide behind the system mm-hmm. 
to yeah. perpetuate things. No, you're right. That's a very good observation. It's a very good observation. And I think some of it, you know, I, I think that some of it, and we're seeing this in our government today, is about power and greed and the concern and fear that if everyday folk like us, you know, have power or, you know, can get by, then it's a threat to other people. Whereas, you know, what we saw with the Jodes, who, who were, in, again, in abject poverty, that I found, and, and we have a couple comments too, and this is um, from, from listeners, and Aunt Ellen commented about this, that, you know, the other thing that you saw throughout the book is that, you know, the, the other poor people help each other, mm-hmm. and I think part of why that happens is simply because they understand the situation. Yeah. And again, as much as I might want to understand and connect with somebody, I have never been starving, mm-hmm. you know? And I've never had to worry about how I'm going to feed my kids tomorrow, you know. And so I think that that's part of the the system that really needs to be evaluated. And again, getting back to philanthropy, there is an understanding that, you know, we have these people in glass ceilings or not glass ceilings. (laughs) What do you call it? Glass glass offices or whatever. (laughs) In big offices, (laughs) in their lovely cushy offices. Trying to decide what to do for somebody that they have no understanding of what they actually need, mm-hmm. you know? Absolutely. And so um, it's sad. It's sad. And that's one of the things Ellen said is, you know, she had never read it, and she was glad to have read it. It was incredibly depressing in that she she felt heavy and burdened by it after she had finished reading it and was speaking on the phone to a friend who's like, you know, what's wrong? And it's like, I just read this heavy book, mm-hmm. you know? And it takes some digestion once you're done with it, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It is depressing. And the thing is, too, you know, your comment about it's the other poor people who help each other. That's one of the problems I had with the book, is that it totally creates a complete us and them. Mm, us versus yeah, them. Yeah. And that it's only the poor people who are the good people. Mm. And people with money, people with land, are not good people. Mm-hmm. And I have an issue with that. Because mm. I don't think people who are wealthy... Or people who are well off are bad people. No, I agree. And I think that that is that is a strain in American society. Mm-hmm. And I, I have a, you know, I know people who feel like this is it's a psychological thing, but like they don't want to be wealthy because they associate wealth with being a bad person. Mm-hmm. So like they yeah. have this thing about success because they're afraid they're gonna. I don't know. I, this is weird well, conversation. No, but. no, I get it. I mean, I think, in, but I think some of it has to do with going back again to like the industrial times in our country where, you know, somehow the system was built that the CEO or the person who owns the factory makes a shit ton of money and they have to keep their workers in step, you know, like in place by, and part of the way they can do that is by controlling how much they pay them. Now, of course, there's, you know, they have a business to run and they have, as you said, they have, you know, bankers who might own the building or whatever that they they have to, to you know, answer to. But in a lot of cases, they're just making a shit ton of money. Absolutely. And they could be sharing some of it with their workers, mm-hmm. you know. So there's a system in place that is broken. And that's different than what we're talking about, maybe. I mean, there's levels of wealth, of course. Yes. Right? Yeah. And so there there's a scene in Grapes of Wrath where a guy pulls up in a roadster, you know, and dressed to the nines, looking for farm help. And that scene just like, oh, it just... With his little gold football chain. Right, yeah. And it just made my stomach hurt because it's like here that, you know, the whole book, this was towards the very end of the book, and 
the whole book, you know, they're piecing together this piece of crap vehicle that they're crossing the country in, you know, and this guy pulls up in a fancy pants car to say, come work for me for two cents, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And that does exist. And I agree with you that, you know, there are also plenty of people who are kind and have money and, you mm -hmm. know, are helping people in need. But yeah. but I'm just that's saying, not what like, Steinbeck was yes, trying to do exactly. Here. I mean, I think yeah. what Steinbeck was trying to do, I think he accomplished it. Like, he mm -hmm. wanted people to feel... Yeah. Feel the hurt and yeah. feel the pain and feel the the hopelessness and that these are good people who want to work. Right. They don't want to hand out. Yeah. Well, but, we, we heard from Kate and the, the term she used is that it's relentlessly sad. Yes. I thought that really was is. so well yeah. said. Yeah. And like you have hope for them. Yeah. And then it's just kicked out of you. Yeah. With every, you know, turn of the page practically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I guess what I'm saying is, what's the point of literature and what's the point of art? You know, protest literature and literature like this that wants people to feel compassion for other people. I think it's really great and it's really important. But what does it do to help people? Like the people like us who are reading it, you mean? Or the people in the plight? Like, how is it informing us? Yeah, how is it helping the situation? Yeah. Well, or I mean, I think just, you have to, it, I think you have to, I mean, you know, some people wouldn't care to be exposed to it unless they read this novel, you know, or not, mm -hmm. care might not be the right word, they just might not have had the opportunity to be exposed to the idea of it, even, mm -hmm. you know, unless they'd read this novel. I mean, I think people spend a lot of time in their little life, in their circle, and we tend to befriend people who, I hesitate to use this word, but are like us, mm -hmm. I'm using air quotes, you know. And so that's what literature is for, to expose us to other things. Mm -hmm. And I recognize what you're saying, that it would be nice if there were some solutions offered at the same time. But I think that that's, I mean, that's where interpretation comes along. Like one of the things Kate points out is, you know, that it was cheaper. I don't think she used the word cheap. Yeah, it was, food was going to waste. People were starving and so much food was going to waste, which was so painful. It was being destroyed. It was being destroyed. In front of your eyes. Because it was cheaper for that to happen than to pay people to pick it. As a matter of fact, I have one little section that I marked. And Chris, I know you have some things that you marked too. But um, so here, the, this is, um, it, this was my favorite, favorite chapter of the book. It's chapter, ah, sorry, 25. The people come with nets to fish for potatoes in the river and the guards hold them back. They come in rattling cars to get the dumped oranges, but the kerosene is sprayed. And they stand still and watch the potatoes float by, listening to the screaming pigs being killed in a ditch and covered with quicklime, watch the mountains of oranges slop down to a putrefying ooze. And in the eyes of the people, there is the failure. And in the eyes of the hungry, there is a growing wrath. And in the souls of the people, the grapes of wrath are filling and growing heavy, growing heavy for the vintage. Mm -hmm. I love that paragraph for two reasons. I mean, it sums up what's happening with the waste of the food, but also it's the reveal of the title of the book, which I always like the reveal. Yeah. But that whole chapter is just about how farmers, how they learn to um, farm, to grow the food. But then the problem of, this is a huge societal problem, which I'll be talking about later from another book I'm reading, about how we farm so that we can feed people do it efficiently and not have waste mm -hmm. and have farmers who can make a living, which right. is another huge problem, right. right? Well, yeah, and have a farm practices that don't destroy the land. Right. I mean, because that's, that's one of the problems, too. If you only have 40 acres and you're planting them generation after generation and you don't have, you know, follow sections like 
the soil will be depleted and right. get blown away, obviously, as they right. learn. So, well, and it's the same with the used car salesman chapter. Yeah. So I get and that. It, and I, I get that. So maybe the thing is, it's just like, this is just, it's a novel that's bringing the plight of these people to light and showing how the system at every turn is against them. From the guys who have the job pumping the gas, who were like, they're like animals. Right. They, they call them animals. Yeah. Well, so my cynical side, Chris, is saying that people do take advantage of other people. I don't know why. I don't have, like, a competitive bone in my body. I desire to do good in the world, which is why I just got a master's in philanthropic studies, you know? I mean, I don't understand it. I don't understand how you could be a business owner and make so much more money than your employees and feel okay about it. I just, I don't understand all of that, you know? And I think that that's what this novel is really about, you know, that there are, that there is a them and us mentality in, in society. And I think it's everywhere Mm -hmm. at every level. I agree with you. I don't think CEOs need to be making 250 million a year when they're bringing people into work in their retail shops at seven fifty an hour. I mean, I, mm. I agree with that completely. I think, I, but I don't know what the solution yeah. is. I guess it's what I'm always hungry for is some solutions mm-hmm. to some of these challenges that are chronic. Like you said, it's chronic mm. in American society, yeah. at least for the last, you know, over a hundred years yeah. when we changed from being more of a agricultural and even in, Look at America as an agricultural society. So much of that rested on slaves. Right. Yeah. So, I want answers. I want solutions. <laughs> anyway, that's not the I, point. I have right? some answers coming up in my currently reading, but we'll have to yeah. get to that. But I, yeah. I have to say, I mean, I'm so happy, happy, air quotes again, that I read The Grape to the yeah. Wrath, because it is a great work. It yeah. is a, a work of literature that makes you feel. Yeah. I mean, I, it's exhausting. Yeah. One of my friends said she was hungry the whole time. Yeah. Because I was mentioning to her when I first started it, they have this great breakfast, you know, biscuits and bacon. And I'm like, coffee. Yeah, yeah, I'm like, wow, that's really good. She's like, well, that's the last good meal. (laughs) She's like, after that, she's like, you know, you're hungry the whole time. Yeah. Because they barely have enough food to scrape by. And, And I think one of the points is early on in the book, when the tractors start coming, it's, um, one of the local kids, young men, takes a job. He's not a kid. He's a young man with two kids of his own. Takes a job driving one of the tractors. And they're like, why are you doing this? And he's like, for $3 a day or whatever the pay mm-hmm. is. That's why. Because I have my kids to feed. Right. I have a family to take care of. My wife and her mom lives with us. Right. And, I mean, that's the reality that you have to feed your own. Right. But even Ma, in that first scene when they get into their first Hooverville, mm-hmm. And she's cooking, and all those kids yeah, surround her, and they're all starving. That was such a painful it scene. It was such a painful scene, and she leaves some of the food for them. The family goes into the tent to, to eat, and she says, you kids can have what's left. And they come, and they eat, and then later one of the other mothers comes and yells at her. Right. She's, yeah. You know, she yells at her for feeding her kids, like that she's some show-off. Right. Yeah, that was a tough. That's oh, a that tough scene, tough. and even yeah. one of the little boys, because she ma says to the kids early on, "So did you not have breakfast?" And most of the kids are nodding, like, "No, we didn't have breakfast. We just don't mm-hmm. have food." And this one kid says, "Yeah, we ate. We had breakfast." And he 
has his little brother with him, mm-hmm. and they ran off. Mm-hmm. And one of the older girls says, no, they didn't eat. Right. He, he's always saying that they have food. He said that they had meat the other day, and I went and I looked, and they were eating fried flour, yeah, just like all the rest of us. Yeah. So, yeah. There's so many heartbreaking scenes yeah. in the novel. It was tough. And, you know, it's interesting, too. I mean, we probably should move on at some point. But the, the term a classic, you know, there's always this conversation about how do you, when do you decide a book is a classic? And it's like, well, when you read something like this, then you know. Yeah. It's, this is a classic. A- absolutely. And there's a reason it's still taught yes. in high school. And that's, yeah. you know, and it is so relevant. And I know um, one of our listeners, Colleen in Chicago, had said, that it's you know feels very topical with the focus on economically disenfranchised white Americans forced to grapple with change because this is about change, mm-hmm. the changing economic focus, and there's a lot of white rage. I mean, you talk yes. about white rage today. Yeah. This is a book about white people. Well, and then the whole other thing we didn't even get to is the racism. I mean, then yeah. these these folks get to. California, and they start calling them Okies, mm-hmm. you know, and they're like, what? You know, they go home, Okies, you know, so there's this whole string of racism, too, that we didn't even get to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then the Okies using the N-word. Right. So, right. I mean, there are no, I don't think there are any African-American people depicted in the book, and they certainly did not show up in the movie. Okay. At all. Yeah. Chris watched the movie without me. I did. I watched she the movie on me. late last night. <laughs> I must have seen parts of it before because I remember scenes. It was um, Henry Fonda okay. plays Tom. Right, right. And I wrote down a couple other names. One of the famous actors, uh, John Carradine, plays Jim okay. Casey. And then Jane Darwell, who I don't I don't know if I've ever seen her before. She plays Ma. Mm. And she has the saddest eyes. Mm. I mean, in that I mean, watching that movie and feeling the weight of her world on her. And the, the final scene when she's talking about kind of the weight that women bear, mm-hmm. that's what really made every all the gender stuff even more pronounced mm-hmm. within the book and within the story is that final scene with Ma. Yeah. And she's like the perfect character mm-hmm. to yeah. convey that because she looks exhausted and sad. Um, but anyway, the, I didn't read any criticism of mm-hmm. the book because I I didn't have time for one mm-hmm. and I I, I just kind of wanted to talk about it yeah raw um, but I am going to read a couple things one thing I looked at this morning was the New York Times review of the book from 1939 when it first came out and I thought I might just read like the first paragraph of the review and maybe the last paragraph if you don't Great. mind just, yeah, so it's please. 1939 review April 16th issue in the New York Times it was written by Peter Monroe Jack he says there are few novelists writing as well as Steinbeck and perhaps a very few who write better but it is most interesting to know how very much alike they are all writing Hemingway, Caldwell, Faulkner, Dos Passos in the novel, and McLeish in poetry are those whom we easily think of in their similarity of theme and style. Each is writing stories and scenarios of America with a curious and sudden intensity, almost as if they had never seen or understood it before. They are looking at it again with revolutionary eyes, stirred like every other man in the street with news of foreign persecution they turned to their own land to find seeds of the same destructive hatred. Their themes of pity and anger, their styles of sentimental elegy and scarifying denunciation 
may come to seem representative of our time. McLeish's Land of the Free, for instance, going directly to the matter with poetry and pictures, the matter being that the land is no longer free, having been mortgaged, bought, and finally bankrupted by a succession of anonymous companies, banks, politicians, and courts, or, for the present instance, Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath, as pitiful and angry a novel ever to be written about in America. Mm. And he goes on, he... Um, he talks about the beauty and fertility of California concealing human fear, hatred, and violence. Mm. Scared is a Western farmer's word for the inhabitants. Frightened of the influx of workers eager for jobs, and when they are frightened, they become vicious and cruel. This part of the story reads like the news from Nazi Germany. Mm. Families from Oklahoma are known as Okies. While they work, they live in what might as well be called concentration camps. So, and he talks about that a bit more and how everyone who complains is called a red. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the final paragraph, I'll just read that. Um, how true this may be, no reviewer can say. One may very easily point out that a similar message has been read by the writers mentioned above and that Mr. Steinbeck has done the same thing before. It is easy to add that the novel comes to no conclusion, that the preacher is killed because he is a strike breaker, that Tom disappears as a fugitive from California justice, that the novel ends on a minor and sentimental note, that the story stops after 600 pages merely because a story has to stop somewhere. All this is true enough, but the real truth is that Steinbeck has written a novel from the, the depths of his heart with a sincerity seldom equaled. It may be an exaggeration, but it is the exaggeration of an honest and splendid writer. Mm, so yes. really, really great review. And yeah. one of the points he makes about the brother who stops and stays at mm -hmm. the water at the river, he says that this that guy became his own throw, mm -hmm. staying there by the water with the abundance of fish and everything. And the point of Casey in the concept of the oversoul that were all little parts of a big soul, that's from Emerson. Oh. So like I, I thought it was kind of cool that there are these nods to 19th century writers and their philosophies. But then there's so much biblical allusion yes. too. And I mean, wow, yeah. some yeah. really heavy stuff. And I don't know my Bible all that well. I've, I've read probably most of it. But I, I, I'm sure there are hundreds of biblical allusions yeah. and references that I totally didn't get. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Great book, and I I want to just men mention that I bought a used copy of the book. It was from a high school. Oh, cool! <laughs> so you have the kids' names there, and it looks like three kids read this book. There's not any underlining, <laughs> but I bought this book because it had sticky notes. Oh, cool! And from the handwriting, it looks like it was a a young girl named Elizabeth comparing her handwriting from signing out the book. Oh, yeah. Um, but at one point, you know, Casey is talking about having sex with some of his parishioners. And the, the sticky note here says, I swear, if I hear of one more holy person nailing a girl, I'm going to scream. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so that's one reason I, I, I purchased this used copy because I thought, oh, I want to read this girl's sticky notes throughout yeah. the book. Oh, that's and, hilarious. And There's has, a lot of them. Yeah, she has others in here. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I purchased so. a used copy also, um, I think from the book barn when we were there together, and um, there was not a stitch of underlining or 
dog earring. I did some dog earring, um, but yeah, that's yeah. funny. Yeah. Wow. So great book. Yeah. And it, the glad movie, we read it. Yeah, I am too. I'm, I'm glad. And I, uh, like I said, I'll probably read a little bit of criticism just to, to understand things a bit more. Yeah. But I think yeah. at this point, my focus on wanting answers and solutions is it's just because of the current sure. times we're living in right now because yeah. it's yeah. just as frustrating. Yeah. And, and scary. Yeah. Yeah. And I always, I never went to bed hungry as a kid. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I know my parents didn't have a ton of money early on, mm-hmm. but I never went to bed hungry. And I can't mm-hmm. imagine what it would be like and what it does to you mm-hmm. to grow up chronically hungry. It has a big impact. I have two friends right now that did, and it has a huge impact. And it has a huge impact on how you choose to raise your own children. Mm-hmm. You know, because you just have that. You're overcompensating. You know, for something that you experienced. Yeah. You know. Rightfully so. I'm mm-hmm. not saying that as a judgment. Oh, yeah, know? not yeah. at all. I like, yeah. and if you can, yeah. of course. And then it yeah. makes me think of um, Hillbilly Elegy, mm-hmm. where if you, you don't have the extra money for generation after generation after generation, maybe you do develop a what-the-fuck attitude. Yeah. Why work? Right. nothing ever gets better. Right. Yeah. Well, and exposure. I mean, I've just seen it with my own kids, you know, that I, I you know, you teach them what you know. You know, it's as basic as that. And it's why I've said to my kids, like, imagine if every day you got out of bed and I told you some race that I choose is bad. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what you're going to know. And that doesn't mean that you won't rise above it. Plenty of people do, yes. you know. But it's still what you were taught and what you know. Mm-hmm. And so the same thing can be true of being a hungry person or being someone who you've watched your parents try to seek work that will help them get by and they can't you know all of that has an impact and it's one of the things I feel about education that it took me a long time to realize like my parents were highly educated my dad has a PhD my mother two master's degrees you know that's not something I ever thought about you know Mm -hmm. it was just what I knew yeah and so you know that has an impact also on how you perceive education and the importance of school Mm -hmm. you know my daughter is a social worker in um, Denver public schools and her first week on the job she called me and said how did you get us to go to school I was like I never I used to say to you guys when you were little I go to work and you go to work and your work is school Mm -hmm. you know I go to a restaurant to work you go to school to work you know, mm-hmm. and never, my kids never didn't want to go to school. Mm-hmm. I never had to, you know, force them out of bed or anything like that. And so it was a tr- tricky conversation to have with her because yeah. it's like, I don't really have any tricks up my sleeve, right. you know. Yeah. But I said, you know, if the parents of these kids don't value education, that's going to be tricky. You know, if they, especially at middle school age, for a lot of parents, it's like, you're done. Well, you and know? then you have to look at where you live and what the schools are about. Right. Like, I hated school, mm-hmm. and I, mm-hmm. you know, kind of, I grew up in a blue-collar neighborhood. The schools were decent schools, but it wasn't, I, I, what, I didn't feel like I had a lot of stimulation there looking back. Mm-hmm. So, again, too, like, if you're living in an area where the schools don't have much resources, who the hell yeah. wants to sit there with a 40-year-old textbook right. day after day? Right. And that's all you're doing. Right. Whereas... You know, in wealthier communities, the schools are there to actually enrich the children right. and not just put them through their paces. That was the other thing with Grapes of Wrath. I was like, get these kids in school and get them on the free lunch program. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it existed back then. It probably didn't. But yeah. Well, that know. government camp was interesting. Yeah. That there was this great government camp. Uh, okay, this is another. Okay, back to the Grapes of Wrath <laughs> real quick. But the whole issue of the cops 
yeah. being against the people. The cops are totally in the pockets of the businesses, mm -hmm. and the cops are doing the bidding of these businesses at the expense of the people. Right. And that right. was fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it, oh, we could talk we for could hours talk forever about this. about this, because yeah. it makes me think of this yeah. one Smedley Butler, who was a Marine Corps, I think he was a general, was he? Yeah, he was a general. He was in the Marine Corps at, around the turn of the century and wrote a book when he got out of the Marine Corps after being in the Marine Corps like 20, 30 years called War is a Racket because mm -hmm. he came to the realization that the military is used to further American economic interests. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, okay, we could talk okay. forever. I know All right, we should yeah. move on. Goodbye, Grapes of Wrath, yes. for now. What are you currently reading, Chris? Currently <laughs> reading, I am reading two books right now. One is a book that I picked up at the library sale we went to not too long uh, ago. Pequot. Pequot, Pequot library. library in Southport. It's uh, Will Cather, a memoir written by Elizabeth Shepley Sargent. And this is a book that came out after Cather died. And she was friends with Sargent for decades. So this is Sargent's take on Cather. Oh. So I'm reading that. And I'm reading another book, too, a biography of Jane Austen. Jane Austen, A Brief Life by Fiona Stafford. And that's from Yale University Press. I, they sent me a review copy. Oh, this so is, this is new? It is new. It's, it's a, it is new. It originally came out, I believe, from another press some years ago, but this is a new edition okay. from, from Yale. And I'm really enjoying it. It's part of Austin and August reading. Perfect. So now that I'm fit through The Grapes of Wrath, I could can move, move back to Austin yeah. and everything. So how about you? I'm reading, and I think I was reading this last episode, The Twelve Lives of Samuel Hawley by Hannah Tinty. This is for a book club that I'm in that we're reading, we're talking about it this week. I don't know if I'm going to get it finished. Um, I'm really enjoying it, though. It's a father-daughter book. And then the other one I'm reading is The Unsettling of America, Culture and Agriculture by Wendell Berry. Cool. It was published in 1977. I've been alluding to Wendell Berry somewhat casually for the, a few episodes, and now I can actually out myself. Jacob and I were up at Sterling College in Vermont last week, which is a very cool agricultural college. It's very small, but they teach, it's a working college where kids learn to farm the land, and they learn to farm the land without industrial equipment. So it was very interesting to be up there and be going back to my room at night and reading The Grapes of Wrath. Oh my gosh, I bet. I mean, it was so crazy. And Wendell Berry wrote this um, seminal piece of work in 1977, and it was really all about... Um, he's a Kentucky writer, so if you're from the Midwest, you know probably who Wendell Berry is. A lot of people don't know who he is. He's now published over 40 books. He's a poet. And he's written works of fiction, and he wrote this book, The Unsettling of America, which really spoke to um, the, the process of destroying the earth through big agriculture back in the day. Mm -hmm. And he talks a lot about so much of that comes from the government, you know, and the FDA and the USDA and, you know, all of these government agencies that basically control farming. Mm -hmm. And they control the farm budget, which is one of the most important budgets that there is in our country. And that's why farmers change their crops and start growing different crops because they're subsidized. Mm -hmm. 
So Wendell Berry grew up in a very small farming community. He still lives in that community. His father was a congressman. I'm sorry, was it his father? Yeah, it was a congressman that did a lot of work to support the tobacco farmers in Kentucky. And um, his brother, maybe I might have this wrong, his brother might be the congressman, but the, all of the, those, the two brothers and the father were very involved in farming and um, the government side of farming in the state of Kentucky. There is a Berry Center that has all of um, Wendell Berry's works and writings, as well as his brother and his father. And the point of the Berry Center is to help train young people to become farmers and hopefully to keep them local in their community. Mm -hmm. And part of the importance of farming is community banks, mm -hmm. which we see disappearing and being bought up, which pretty much has already happened in this country. And um, that was also another line in the Grapes of Wrath, the importance of the banks, right? Yes. And so Wendell Berry believes very strongly, as does the Berry Center and his daughter Mary Berry, in having community banks in these rural communities again, because farmers need loans. Right. And most of them won't um, be, you know, most won't be able to be financed by traditional financing of the big banks, you know. So anyway, I am involved in this project where the Berry Center had an agricultural, four-year agricultural um, degree-granting program with St. Catherine's College in Kentucky, but St. Catherine's closed. Oh. So they were looking for a new place to house the program, and they've chosen Sterling College. Right. And I know the president of Sterling College. I've worked with him in the past. So was asked through a mutual friend of mine if I would come up and talk about doing some grant writing for this new program they have in place. Sure. So it's very exciting. It's a program I believe very strongly in agriculture. I believe in growing food close to where we live mm -hmm. and that we all have to get back to having root cellars in our basements and canning food in the summers. I mean, I really believe in that. And um, one last soapbox, you know, we go to these grocery stores where we have vast supplies of food year-round that aren't grown where we live mm -hmm. and buying local is really important and not using pesticides is really important right. and protecting our land and that's even more tragically important now as we see the devolution of things like the EPA yes. <laughs> in our government yeah. so I did get the chance to very briefly meet Wendell Berry oh, which awesome. was like Jacob and I were talking on the walkover like oh and I should say Jacob is my son I don't know if I've said that. Jacob is my son. We were talking on the way over, like, don't, like, don't bow to him. Don't, you know, like, I mean, people, just every step he takes, people who know him. in Sterling College, like, there are people who are at Sterling College because of this book, The Unsettling of America, mm -hmm. and all of Wendell Berry's writing. So he was, this was his first time on campus, and we were there, too. And it was like he was going to have days of people fawning over him. So I said to Jacob, we can't fawn. Like, yeah. that is not what we're here to do. We just shake his hand and say, pleasure to meet you, you know. But he has this delightful little um, accent. And his daughter, Mary Berry, is fantastic. I love her. And we were up there. Um, they also, Sterling College has this um, program called the New American Farmstead Program, which is a program throughout the um, summer where they do these one-week intensive coursework where they do like beer making and cheese making and fermentation mm -hmm. and so this very well-known man if any of you listeners are in the world of fermenting sander cats was there 
who's like the man in fermentation world mm-hmm. and he was there to teach this fermentation class cool. and on friday every week they do these classes friday sterling does all communal um, meals breakfast lunch and dinner staff bring their kids it's lovely and the the class does the friday lunch every week and so the fermentation class did did the lunch mm-hmm. and fermenting takes some time so all of the stuff was basically like not ready but they were supposed to do the class. So we're sitting next to Mary Berry and we're all eating and the food is not good. <laughs> it's not good. But Jacob and I certainly aren't going to be the ones that say it. You know, we're there on business. Yeah. So finally Mary Berry goes, I hate this food. I hate it. It's terrible. <laughs> it was so funny. And she turns to Jacob and she said, if you come visit me in Kentucky, I'll make you a hamburger. It was hilarious and so true, you know. Yeah. But um, anyway, Sander Katz, whose book I didn't write down, I should look it up. He is a fantastic man. I got to spend the week with him, too, unexpectedly, and I'm hoping we could get him on the podcast because he's hilarious. Awesome. Yeah. And his story of how he became known as Sander Kraut, because he makes a lot of sauerkraut, <laughs> is hilarious. And, um, and then also I want to talk about Chelsea Green Publishing, which does a lot of these books, you know, on like beer making and the environment and things like that. And mm-hmm. I, we're going to go long this week, so I'll talk about yeah. that in the next episode. Okay. But Sander Katz books were published by that. And Sterling has a relationship with Chelsea Green, the publisher. And so they also sell the books at a discount during this week. So they have this beautiful display of all their books, which... I will talk about on a future episode. Very cool. Awesome. I look forward yeah. to that. So more Wendell Berry in my future, yeah. more Wendell Berry reading. And his, I highly encourage folks to pick up his poetry. If you're an environmentalist at all, read The Unsettling of America. It will unsettle you because mm-hmm. it was written in 1977 or 1970. Yeah, seven. And it's, I mean, Jacob and I, I was reading it aloud to Jacob on our drive up to Vermont and we both were looking at each other like, this could be written in 2017. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. That's 30 years ago. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. Well, there, I mean, there is a movement in, of smaller farmers, individual farmers growing organic crops. Mm-hmm. And there are quite a few in Connecticut yes. that I got to meet when I was working for the natural food store. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's one farmer in particular I, I volunteered and helped do some plantings with her. She's in Old Saybrook, and she her background is generations of farmers from the Midwest who were into conventional farming. She went to a big state school to study agriculture, and during her time there, had a complete change of heart and started getting into organic farming, mm-hmm. small-scale, local farming. And so when I was there one time helping out, her her mom and her grandmother actually came because at first her her family thought she was nuts like why are you doing this weird organic stuff like you know conventional farming right. is the way to go get a big yeah. combine so, and get going yeah. <laughs> so they've they've come around and they were yeah. actually coming to help out that weekend to do a lot of planting oh, cool. and they were starting to learn from her yeah. So, you know, yeah. it's there's really hope. cool. So this is the answer, Chris, I have for you with the Grapes of Wrath. There's hope. There is hope, yeah. You know, I mean, some of it is going to have to be very much on the local level. And, the, and what will help with that is those of us who live in proximity to a, a small local farm to support them. Yeah, yeah, uh, because know. they have subscriptions. Right. I have a yeah. CSA this summer yeah. where I have a purchase in the farm share and I get my f- food delivered. Well, actually, I pick it up every yeah. week, and it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And 
that's what helps farmers to survive. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. So that's part of And volunteering. If you have a local, you know, independent farmer, they could probably use your help during planting season and harvesting season. Yep. For sure. We went and picked blueberries when we were up in Vermont, this beautiful blueberry farm, and the farmer said, you're helping me. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely. we don't yeah. want these blueberries to go to waste on the on the bushes. I mean, this was a huge farm, yeah. you know, just beautiful. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Excellent. I look forward to hearing more and learning yes. more as Me we go too. along with this. Me too. Right. Biblio Adventures. Chris has a huge one. Yeah, I do. Well, I did do the Queer There and Everywhere, the mm-hmm. talk with Sarah Prager yes. at the Book Club bookstore, and that went great. She had a wonderful turnout there, and we had a fantastic conversation and lots of questions from the audience, which is really great. Yes. So, And that, that Queer There and Everywhere, that is the collection of 23 biography, biographies of people queer people throughout history who've changed the world, starting with a, a Roman emperor and ending up in contemporary times. So I was going to ask really you cool. how far back yeah. she went. That's cool. Yeah. And Queen Christina is one of the people in her book, and I'm named after Queen Christina. I did not and know And I'm that. queer. <laughs> Imagine that. It's so funny. One time, so, yeah, I was truly named after Queen Christina. I did not know yes, that. Yes, because um, my mom... I, and Queen Christina must be taught, at least when my mom was in school in Germany as a kid, she learned about mm. Queen Christina and just always loved the name and Queen Christina because she was a very highly educated woman, very much her own person in a time period when most women did not have that luxury. And one time I was home visiting my mom and she was watching TV and this documentary came on about Queen Christina She's like, oh my gosh, come watch. So I went and we sat in bed and we watched this documentary and and it mentioned that she was probably gay. And it was probably in the 90s I saw that when people were starting to talk more about people's sexual orientation and differences. And I turned to my mom, I was like, did you know when you named me that? She's like, no, I did not know. I did not name you after her because she was gay. Um, So... It was kind of a funny point. Yeah, that's cute. But one funny thing from the audience was Sarah Prager, the author, and I, we both happened to be wearing green pants. We did not coordinate, but there we were with our green pants, and it was a Thursday. And one of the women in the audience, who was probably in her 60s or so, asked, she's like, so did you wear your green pants because it's Thursday? And Sarah cracked up right away because she had heard this before, that wearing green on Thursday was an underground symbol to let other people know you're gay. Yeah, I'd never, I'd heard, never that. heard that either. Yeah. And so that, that woman grew up with that as a, you know, you wear green on Thursday, you're gay. Interesting. I mean, when I was a kid, it was more like you eat the green M&Ms, you're gay. Oh, I've, so I've never yeah. heard anything about green. Yeah. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I hadn't heard that either, but one of my friends in Chicago did, who's a bit a little bit older than I am, so it's probably a generational thing, yeah. too. So. Anyway, well, I saw the picture thing. of you two, and I thought you looked so fashion forward, both of you. I mean, it was like, wow, did they call each other? Just like you and I today, we both showed up in these pink shirts. Isn't that Who weird? knew? What color pants and gray, like you oh, know, like light pants. Yeah. Like Who knew? Pants. Look at that. Yeah. It's, yeah. You guys looked very nice side by side. We're fashion thought, connected. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. So that was a great thing, and I totally recommend that book. It was written. For, it's written for young adults, but it's good reading for all ages. And it would make a you know if you're already starting to scope out holiday gift ideas for people, Ooh, add nice. that one to your list. 
I wish. I also think people recommend it for your school libraries. Yes, it, it seems like a mm-hmm. great book to have in the school library. Absolutely, and it's up for a New England Book Award. Oh, nice! It, it certainly needs to be up for a Lambda Award. Yeah, I don't know if they've made any announcements yet about their lists, but um, it did win a, a library award. I don't remember the name of it, unfortunately, but that means that X amount of libraries will be getting a copy of that book. Oh, good. Yeah, good. Because it's really good. It has great resources to read on about individual people or different aspects of being queer. And queer, I should back up and say, that is a, a big word. And a lot of people react negatively to it because they grew up being called queer. But queer is a term used in the LGBT community to kind of encompass everything that's not straight. And it's kind of a shorthand in some ways because really LGBTQIA, like yeah, how many more letters? Yeah, how many more yeah. letters? So yeah. Yeah. queer is kind of a, a capsule term to use. And then otherwise, um, do you want to? You go. Oh, you me go. Going. Okay. Yeah. Speaking of queers, the other thing I did this weekend, <laughs> um, I was at the Willa Cather weekend Yahoo! on Governor's Island this week, and which was a fantastic experience. Uh, the Empire State Center for the Book is hosting a building on Governor's Island. And each weekend they have a different author organization come in or a literary group to just be there to talk about that author, that writer, or that group of writers. Because like they have an Irish American Writers Weekend coming up, I know. So I was there with the Willa Cather Foundation. And we did some readings of her letters and of some of her works. And on Saturday, Robert Thacker, who's a professor at St. Lawrence University, came and did a talk on her poetry, on Cather's poetry. Because mm. a lot of people, she's known for her novels. She's also known for some of her short stories. But her first book was actually of poetry, mm. April Twilights. So there's a new edition, a new pocketbook edition of her poetry that came out. And um, Robert Thacker is somebody who, he wrote the introduction to that book. So... He talked about her poetry, and it was just a great experience to talk with people who maybe were familiar with Cather. They may have read her in high school, you know, just kind of drawn by the name. A lot of people who've never heard of her. Oh, interesting. Came in and talked. Um, There were two young people who came in at different times. It was a, a young woman, and then later in the day, a young man who were just really turned on to Willa Cather by a friend or by a teacher, and they wanted to learn more about her. So that was really exciting to talk with them. And then there were people who were visiting. We talked with a French couple, an Italian couple, and a couple from Spain who were mm. in visiting. And so it was neat to talk with them, too, about Cather. That's great. So there yeah. was a really good turnout and interesting you know, yeah. mix of people. There was a really great mix of people. And, and some people, too, were interested in the architecture, just coming in to look at the house. Okay. Um, Governor's Island is historically a military compound. It was started uh, in the Revolutionary War. It was a central point for the Americans keeping the British from attacking New York. Mm, makes sense because yeah. of the location. Yeah. Right. And then the Army had it for the longest time, and then it was a Coast Guard base for a long time. And actually, one of the young men who came around actually grew up in the island because his mom was in the Coast Guard. So he told us a bit more about the buildings that we were in because we were in the officer's section where the commander's house was, and then these great homes built like in the 19th century. Mm. So cool place to go if you're into old architecture, and there's the old fort 
that still stands there, which was fantastic to see and go in there. It's actually run by the National Park Service. Oh, cool. So you can go in, and they have tours of the fort itself. Hmm. And they had great food trucks and wow. food vendors there. And it's a place where people, they, they just opened it up to the public, actually, it's several years ago. It's not been a public space for that long. Um, but a lot of people go for picnics and just to hang out for the day. You could rent bicycles. Wow. So really a great place to be. Oh, I wish I yeah. could have gone with you. You went two days, and I, I just, did. I couldn't. Yeah. I was gone. It was gone, so much you know? fun. Yeah. So I took the train yeah. to Grand Central, yeah. the subway to Battery yeah. Park, and then a little ferry. It's like a five, ten minute ferry ride. Yes. And they go, I think, like every half hour. And your pictures so, were amazing. We need to get some of the pictures on the website. I know you did them yeah. on social media, but we'll get some of yeah. those up on our it website. It was just, just yeah. a really neat experience, and, okay. and it was wonderful just to talk with people about Cather all day. It made me really happy to know, because you did a really good job on social media. It's like, oh, she's on the ferry. <laughs> it made me so happy, like, Chris is in Cather heaven. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. So I was really happy for you, and I was sad that I, I was hopeful that maybe I could have hit one of the days, but I just couldn't do it. I couldn't yeah. swing it. Because I was getting back from Vermont. So. Well, just so you all know, for those of you who are on the in the New York area, the Society Library is doing a big Cather exhibit in October. Hmm. It's going to run October of this year to August 2018. Oh, wow. And it's about Cather in New York. Because she and her partner, Edith Lewis, were members of the Society Library for like 20 years. So they have records of what Willa and Edith checked out and some memories of her conversations with staff and things like that. So we'll announce that date later. It's in yeah. October sometime. I don't know the exact date, but that will be another fun Cather yeah, happening. Maybe we'll do a joint jaunt to that one. Yeah. That would be fun. It's, I would like that. It's so cool. I'm happy that they're talking more about this because Cather is so known for Nebraska, mm-hmm. for her Nebraska novels, her immigrant novels set there. But she had lived her whole adult life in New York City. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned, I was up in Vermont, and I did get to go to the Galaxy Bookshop in Hardwick, Vermont. <laughs> that sounds like such a cool place, and your pictures are awesome. My pictures are awesome. <laughs> so it's a it's a beautiful little bookstore, and one of the things I loved about it is, you know, how so many bookstores have, they have staff picks, and they're either, they have little shelf talkers, like throughout the store with a staff writing on it, or sometimes I've been to stores where at the end caps there might be some, you know, one of the staff members has an end cap with all their favorites. And if you find someone who has similar taste and you get to go to that bookstore often, it's kind of fun to go to their section and see what they're recommending. Mm-hmm. But what they did here was they had one bookshelf with all of the staff picks. So it was a real mix of all kinds of books from, you know, little kid board books to cookbooks to travel books to, you know, literary fiction. Mm-hmm. And because of the way it was displayed, you kind of had to read all of them, which was really fun. That's neat. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. But then they had something there that I've never seen before, <laughs> which was literary condoms. <laughs> yes. Yes. Literary condoms. And the name on them, the book on them was called <laughs> Great Expectations. <laughs> Which is hilarious, yeah. of yeah. course. And then Chris posted it on social media, and it got some oh. of our listeners, Jana and Katz in particular, <laughs> go and Jennifer, I think, yeah. piped in at some point. Uh, you know, different titles, names that could possibly appear they on were, them. They were on a roll. They were on yeah. a roll. Yes. Hilarious. So if you're interested, go to our Facebook page, because yeah. it was quite fun. It was hilarious. Hard yeah. times is yeah. one that sticks yeah. out. Lovely bones. <laughs> <laughs> 
Lots of, oh, lots the of rise and the fall. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that was really cool. And and there was a, there. I also, I Googled them and mm. I also saw one called Mr. Darcy. There's mm. a Mr. Darcy kind oh. <laughs> Give me Mr. Darcy or something like that. I'm not sure. But yeah, that was really kind of cool. Yeah. And they're actual working condoms. Yeah, they're like, truly they're, condoms in yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah, they're not just. Yeah, I, I offered to buy one for Jacob, but he didn't go for it. Maybe the title was too, you know, frightening for him. I don't know. But um, it was very funny. And actually, we I talked to the bookstore owner. She just bought the bookstore three years ago with a partner from the woman who'd owned it for 26 years. It's been there for 29 years. This is its second location, but it's been in this location for a long time. And then as small towns work, I grew up in one, I know how this happens. That night, I was at dinner at the president's house with a group of people, and I met the owner, the original owner oh, of the bookstore, great. which was hilarious, yeah. and so I, you know, <laughs> got to meet her. But um, it's a really beautiful, they have a really nice selection, it was a really nice stop, I enjoyed it. I also did get to see Bear Pond books from the outside in both Waterbury and Montpelier, and didn't get to step inside mm, because of my travel partner. Boo. <laughs> Boo. No, it's not all his fault. We were busy. We were busy. We were busy. And it was like, the bookstore. Yeah. We already were at one this week. So anyway, it was a nice stop. So upcoming adventures. Do you have anything on the calendar? I don't think I do right now. Oh, good, because I have one to tell you about. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, September 15th at noon at the New Haven Public Library. <gasps> oh, is it the Minjin Lee? Yes. Yes. Min yeah. Lee. yeah. <laughs> Minjin Lee will be there with Erna Broadbur and the author of Nothing's Matt and three other winners of the Wyndham Campbell Prize. Very cool. Do you know that's, what the Wyndham Campbell Prize is? That's a Yale thing. Yeah. Yeah. I just read about it. I never heard about it. It was established in 2013 by a gentleman in honor of his wife who passed away. This is crazy, you guys. So he picks authors. There's a private, like, anon not anonymous, just private, quiet, I guess, whole selection committee that picks people, and they read them, and they make decisions on the winners. Mm -hmm. And then the author gets a phone call. They know nothing about this happening. They get a phone call saying you've won $165,000. Wow. That's a nice phone call. Yeah. To, to support your writing career. And um, it's amazing. It's amazing. And so the winners this year, I'm just going to prattle off very quickly. And the weekend of September 15th through the 17th, they have a big festival, mm -hmm. kind of. And that's free and open to the public. Yeah. I it, saw it, there yeah. were signs um, announcing it on the train, actually, to oh. Grand Central. Oh. Yes. Yeah. I'd never heard of it. So the winners, I'm just going to prattle these off very quickly. I'd never heard of any of them. And um, I will put them in the show notes. And I'm going to butcher all their names. <laughs> so the winners are Andre Alexi. He won in fiction, and he's from Canada, Trinidad, and Tobago. Fiction, Erna Broadbur from Jamaica. Drama, Marina Carr from Ireland. Poetry, Carolyn Forche from the United States. Poetry, Ali Kabi Eckerman from Yankunchachara Aboriginal Australian. Drama, Ike Holter from the United States. Nonfiction, Maya Jasanoff from the United States. And nonfiction, Ashley Young from New Zealand. 
Those are some happy people right now. Yeah, that's a great thing. I'm so happy to know about it beforehand because last year I was at the Sterling Library like the week after this happened, and they had pamphlets there. And I was like, oh, man, I can't believe I missed this. Yeah. And then my second thing was like, I've never heard of these people. Right. How cool to get turned on to new-to-me writers anyway, yeah. but people who are obviously doing really good, interesting work. Right. And uh, Minjin Lee had posted on her social media. That's how I saw the date, yes, but I didn't too. realize... It was that associated with that. Yeah, I just, I went back to read her posting and found all of this. So she's going to be in conversation on September 15th at noon. But then we have to look at the schedule. There's probably some other, the guy Mm -hmm. that's going to be speaking is that Carl Uwe Nosgaard, who's written that series of books about his life. I can't remember what it's Mm -hmm. called. So it's going to be an interesting weekend, and I would like to do. I definitely would like to go to that yeah. event on the fifteenth. Absolutely, so, me too. Yeah, I, I want to try and read. I did get a copy of Free Food for Millionaires. Oh yeah, which is her first novel. Yeah. So I I don't know if I can get it read before then, but it's a bit of a tome. It is. Yeah. yeah but I love pachinko. Yeah. And I found out one of my friends has a pachinko machine. In the states. In the states, he oh. lives here in Connecticut. Oh. And I had no idea, so I have to go look at his pachinko yeah, machine. Get a picture. Mm-hmm. Tell us how, how it yeah. works. He's had it like, you know, he's like our age, and he's had it since he was like 12 or something. Oh, wow. So I look forward to hearing about the whole story of how he came yeah. to get it and everything. So Cool. Yeah. And any upcoming reads? Yeah, I have two. Um, I'm going to be reading a book called Idle Fears by Stephanie Gale, and that's a mystery thriller. And I don't know anything about the story other than that the, the detective is a gay guy. Mm. And that's why I want to read that, because I always like to, you know, gay, lesbian sleuths are yeah. not all that common. So I'm reading that. And then also, drumroll. The new Louise Penny. Oh, right. Yeah, Glass That's right. Houses. You're going dark on, is it the 29th? The 29th, yes. yes. I will be cooped <laughs> right. up at home. I need to write that down. Do, yeah, not, do not text call. or well, call, you know, Chris. Yeah. Well, you'll just turn your phone off. I'm not worried about it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't knock on her door. She'll give you the evil eye. <laughs> yeah, so I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. Um, and my friend John got an advanced reader copy, and he read uh, it and really loved it. So oh, maybe we should go get it from him. Yeah, right. I know where he lives. I yeah, can always just right. break in. Watch out, Look John. Out, John. She's on her way. She's leaving. Hold on. Let me finish talking, Chris. <laughs> Door closed. She's gone. Yeah. So well, I'm, I'm reading The Leavers by Lisa Ko, which oh, is we've yeah. talked about several times. But my I have I'm part of a bi-coastal book club, and we talk quarterly, and it is our read. So I've got to get to that. And then when I was at Galaxy Bookstore, I wanted to buy, they had a really nice Vermont um, author section, which I always like to go to, and I bought On Kingdom Mountain by Howard Frank Mosier, who's an author that passed away this year, and I had always read many great things about him, but I've never read him, so I picked that up. I know that name. Yeah, he's mm. a very prolific author, but I've never read mm, him. I don't think I have either. And um and then after finishing the grapes of wrath, I'd like to read something with cupcakes in it. Yes, <laughs> that's my goal. Cupcakes. So you might I haven't found it yet, but there's probably going to be a little beach read in my future as well. I might do a little palate cleanser with that before I hit any of these others. So. Yeah, boy, I tell you, it was a tough book. Yeah, but it's really like it's hard to read, but it's it propels you. Yeah. like it's a quick read, even yeah. though it is a big book. But yeah. it it's just exhausting. But it's yeah. not. Well, other than the dialect, that can slow people down. But I found myself really 
kind of whipping through it and looking forward to getting back to it. Yeah. Yeah, well, I finished it at 4.30 this morning. So. <laughs> I did not have an easy time. Well, I had a very busy week last week. That's part of it. Yeah. But we should say um, thank you to all the people who did comment and send us emails and everything. Absolutely. That was really lovely. Post your and pictures of the cover. The yeah, that, that was neat fun. to see the different covers that yeah. everybody was reading. Yeah, so um, thank you for reading along with us. Absolutely, thanks. Yeah, and, and if you don't, still send in comments. Or if yeah. you're still reading, I know a couple people are still working away at it so yeah. feel free anytime um i know robin and jean ann came to the cather weekend and robin's reading it okay. and her family is from the area mm-hmm. that the joes go through the mm-hmm. red clay area so kind of cool yeah all right thanks everybody happy reading thanks so much for listening to the book cougars with emily fine and chris wallach if you have questions or comments, please feel free to email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter under Book Cougars. Please consider leaving us a review on whatever app you use to listen to us. It can help other listeners find us. Thank you.